This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Launchpad on Business Radio. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Launchpad here on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. I'm Rob Conybeer, a founder and managing director at Shasta Ventures, where we focus on investing in early stage companies. So I'm thrilled to have Dick Costello joining me today via Zoom as my guest. He works with startup CEOs and executives, advising them on scaling and leadership as a managing partner at O1 Advisors. And Dick is particularly well-known for his five to six year tenure running Twitter during their huge growth years when they went from, I believe, roughly 50 million users to over 300 million users, first revenue, and really, really built out the infrastructure of that company. He's also founder and CEO of multiple startups, including FeedBurner, which was acquired by Google in 2007. Dick, thanks for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is fun. Yeah, so so I, I have a million questions I want to ask you about Great. Twitter and social media and a lot of different areas. But uh, where I'd like to start is, could you share what O1 Advisors is and what you're yeah. doing right now, what your day job is? Yeah, sure. So, you know, my partner, Adam Bain, and I, you know, we're, we're leading Twitter, as you mentioned, in those five to six years where revenue went from literally zero to a run rate of over two billion a year in six years, you know, faster than just about any internet company other than Amazon, Google, or Facebook. And, and unlike Amazon, Google, or Facebook, we weren't playing from the number one position. You know, we're kind of, we're kind of fighting, for, fighting from behind, from behind the, uh, the gorilla that Facebook is in, and was. Um, so uh, since we did that, um, and that included you know, the user growth that you mentioned and the revenue growth I just mentioned, but also one office to 30 offices around the world, you know, 100 people to less than 100 people when I got there in 2009 to over 4,500 people when I, when I left in 2015. You know, we just experienced all of those multitude of issues you, you go through when you're scaling a business. Well, you know, when you, when you, when you um, uh, pivot from uh, building a product to building a business. So Adam and I focus on that sort of, I don't know, you can call it early growth stage, series B-ish stage of, of venture where the companies are, they have their first revenue. Now the, you know, the bolts are starting to come off the rocket ship. You, all the decisions aren't made by sitting around in a, in a, in eight people at a table and you need to migrate from building a product to building a business. And the way you think about leadership changes, the way you think about managing changes, the way you think about your organization has to change. And so that's where we invest and that's where we help out. The idea is kind of from, you know, Bill Campbell famously did this, um, obviously was on the board at Apple and a close friend of Steve's and then coach Larry, Sergey and Eric at Google. And when, um, when I got to Twitter and when Adam got to Twitter, Bill was, was also there um, helping out. And you know, he, he, he famously did that. And, uh, and Adam and I were sort of talking about the fact in, uh, when Adam left Twitter at the end of 2017 that there was nobody really doing that the way Bill did it anymore. And that was probably an opportunity in the market to go do that. So that's, that's a long roundabout way of, of describing what we do and, and how we do it and where we participate. And, and how much of what you do is advisory in terms of, it sounds like coaching. I mean, because sometimes people say advisory when you see advisor, it's kind of code for a banker and how much of it's coaching and giving that kind of advice and how much of it's investment, you know, kind of the mix between those things. It's, it's interesting. It's kind of like, you know, the, as, as Adam describes it, uh, using his words, the tip of the spear is the, is the coaching advisory um, is piece. It's not like a banker advisory. It's really leadership and management stuff. You know, um, when you, it's funny, when you sort of sit in the back of a room and nowadays it's in the, in the corner of a Zoom call and a, and a management team meeting, when, when CEOs are first going through that transition, again, that early revenue and building out the team and starting to scale the org, sort of notice a pattern of the way they tend to approach things. You know, they, they, the, the CEO, you know, whenever there's an issue, the CEO sort of dive bombs or gets into the weeds and, you know, move over, let me drive and I'll fix it because that's how they got here. That's why they were successful getting to that sort of product market fit. Um, and they try to solve problems with processes instead of ownership and operating structure. And, you know, you always want to remind these people that, you know, and it's a, it's a natural tendency, right? You can see like, Hey, we have this huge customer problem in, in, uh, you know, in, in Nashville, Tennessee. And, uh, and the CEO says, well, you know, we got to put a process in place to make sure that never happens again. And, you know, you want to remind them like, 
you want to manage to outcomes, not to processes. You know, if you manage to processes pretty soon, you're the, you're the TSA and you're making sure that everyone takes their shoes off, but you're not making sure there's not a bomb on the plane. Right. So (laughs) solve problems with ownership and operating security theater, I guess they call that. Yeah. Yeah, Right. So it's a lot of the, you know, it's a, a lot of the same things you sort of see happen r- repeatedly and, 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 and with good reason, because that's, they, they were successful doing those kinds of things. You need to just help them learn to evolve the way they manage and lead. Um, and so it's, it's, a, it's fun. We're having a great time doing it. But that's what, that's what it looks like on the front end. It looks like coaching on the front end, but it's, but it's capital management on the back end. Uh, we have a fund. Uh, we, in, we, invest that, we invest that fund, um, you know, we have a bunch of LPs like any other, like, you know, your firm does. Um, and so it sort of, it looks one way on the front end and another way on the back end. So you mentioned Bill Campbell. Was there somebody, do, do, you, do you recall who your first mentor was? So when you think about running a company or in management that had probably the most influential impact on you? Yeah, you know, I don't even know if she knows this. Susan Wojcicki at Google, I always thought was just a fabulous um, leader and manager. She, um, she's got this, she's got, um, I sort of picked up a, 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 a trait, I'm not sure it's a great trait, but it works uh, from her. Um, I learned just a lot about um, operating leverage um, and operating efficiency from Susan. Susan would do this thing in meetings where she would, if you were presenting to her, she would just have you fly through the presentation. Like, you know, she wouldn't necessarily say this, but she'd kind of go, if you were on a slide, she'd go and dwelled on it. She would go, yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Like, I get it, yeah. And, and do this, spin the go, go, go. So you, you start going faster and faster and faster. And then she'd inevitably go, wait, go back two slides ago. <laughs> and you know, it would happen. And then you'd, anyway, I found myself starting to do the same thing at Twitter. Wait, go back two slides ago. Um, She's just, um, she's just super calm. She never made decisions in reaction or was impetuous um, and was always making decisions calmly and thoughtfully. Um, doesn't let anyone else's emotion become her emotion. You know, if someone else is worked up, she would sort of remain calm and thoughtful and um, just learned a ton from her about managing and leading. I just think she's fantastic. And, and out of curiosity, what you learned from her, all these examples are really good. Was it really more you're learning from her by example in working with her or yeah. would you have sessions as well where she'd sit down and say dick and give you the compliment sandwich you know here's what you're doing well here's no. what you could do better and keep doing the great stuff <laughs> no it was all by example it was all being in the room observing it ha- watching it happen seeing so you know at the time she was she was running uh, ad- the ads business this is pre pre prior to her going and becoming ceo of youtube and, you know, there's some contentious argument about search ads in the room for some reason, and, you know, voices start getting raised and Susan is just like super, super calm or in a, in a, in a, you know, a product strategy session with, with Larry, you know, there starts to get to be an argument about something. Susan would just be super relaxed, calm. Um, she was always willing to speak truth to power. I mean, now she was, you know, she was very early at the company and the guys started it in her garage. So it's not like she's, you know employee number 4,000 and speaking truth to power. But, you know, a lot of other people who were there really wouldn't. They would just nod if, you know, one of the leaders said something that the person disagreed with. Susan was never like that. You know, she would always just speak her mind, but calmly and thoughtfully and never made decisions in reaction, which I just thought was fantastic. Yeah, no, that's great inspiration. It's, uh, do you do you keep in touch with her now as well? Or is it Not really, enough. hey, this is... Not enough. I'll see her on, you know, I'll see her on, you know, CNBC or being interviewed on CNN about, you know, I don't know, trolls on YouTube or something for which I have, you know, I feel for because I know what that's like dealing with all that stuff, obviously. Um, I'll send her a note when I see stuff like that, that or, you know, I see her at a a conference once in a blue moon, but but otherwise not enough. And and before we move on from O1 Advisors, what is it? What does it stand for? Oh, we we started we started on January first, twenty eighteen. So okay, I want to buy. I know there, are, of course, as you would imagine, lots of interpretations, and people think it's a it's a you know the from zero to one, uh, but it just happens to it sort of happens to fit. Yeah, no, it's 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 great to hear about what you're working on <laughs> right now. And what one of the things that I wanted to ask you, actually, I mean, this is a very serious question. Why aren't there more comedians? working in Silicon Valley as executives. And you think of Aaron Levy, for example, yeah. you know, there's a few well-known people who are just kind of funny, Yeah, actually remarkably funny. Why don't yeah. you see more? I don't know, it's a good question. You know, it turns out I spent, um, 
you know, for the people listening who don't know, I spent a lot of time, many years after I graduated from University of Michigan with a computer science degree, um, performing improv in Chicago at a number of places, including Second City. And it's remarkably great management training. Um, you have to learn to listen when you're on stage improvising because you don't hear what the other people on stage are making up as they go along and not going to be very good at participating in the scene. And, you know, listening is most of what new managers in, in, in positions in Silicon Valley should be doing, you know, gathering feedback and listening to their team. Um, you learn um, that when, um, you know, one of the sort of first rules of improv comedy is yes and. The rule of yes and is, hey, when someone says something or initiates something, don't say no, because that sort of stops the progress of the scene. Accept it as the truth and build on it. And, you know, again, when in great companies, when, when, when people come to management, and tell them about some problem, management accepts that perception as this is this person's reality. They obviously feel this is, feel this is a problem. I'm gonna go look into it. And in horrible organizations, um, when people work up the courage to finally go tell management how screwed up things are, management you know, gets defensive or ignores them and you know, maintains the status quo. So it's just a, it was a phenomenal learning experience for me and, 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 and great um, sort of character traits for management leadership. Yeah, well, as I understand it, it's a pretty remarkable story because you were at Michigan majoring, I believe, in computer science. Yeah. And then you had to get something in art to graduate. So yeah, you take this theater class and then you go to your parents, and you say, hey, you know, I really appreciate your your paying for college and all that. Yeah. But I'm going to go to Chicago and do stand up comedy for yeah. a while. Yeah, you know, I basically said, look, I have these job offers and thanks for paying for my four year college education, uh, but I'm gonna go to Second City in Chicago and try to get on Saturday Night Live. I actually ended up auditioning for SNL twice um, and never made it past the sort of first round. The first round is in Chicago and they do the auditions there. And then if you pass those, you get flown to New York and you know- you Actually, what are those auditions like? Are they pretty nerve wracking or do you, do you have like, do you, do you have like a drink or something before you go in to kill your nerves? Like, what's no, the setting like? Is it a Holiday Inn? Like, what's it like? It's it can it's it's sometimes on stage at, at one of the Second City stages. It's sometimes in a conference room of a hotel. Um, it sort of depends. Um, they're not that nerve wracking because you know most of the other people who are there. Everyone else there is you know the the community of people who are doing improv in the city of Chicago is. It, you know, there are a lot of them, but but everybody knows everybody else. So you know, show up, you show up, and it's not like it's a bunch of strangers. It's a, you know, it's Rachel Dratch and Tina Fey, and you know, a bunch of people, Adam McKay, a bunch of people you know. Um, and it's nerve wracking in the sense that you know how good everyone else is, and that's and that's oh, all. Yeah. It, it's um, it's nerve wracking in the sense that the audience can be very sort of you know stone faced. You know, you're not getting a lot of. It's not like performing and everyone's cracking up. They're kind of just staring at you and judging you. So you don't really get a lot of feedback. That sounds like raising money from limited partners for a venture yeah, capital it's a fund. It's very <laughs> remarkable. You go in and you give your pitch and I have never seen a more stone-faced group of people than when you're trying to talk about how great Shasta Ventures is or O1 Advisors is. They just kind of sit there and then you find out later whether you got a check or not. Uh, I, I get it. Um, you're 100% correct. It's not unlike that. It's good training for that. So if you're just tuning in, I'm Rob Conyvere, and you're listening to Launchpad on Sirius XM 132. I am on Zoom right now with the former CEO of Twitter, Dick Costello. So coming back to, to Twitter, and you know, I, I kind of have some questions around. A lot of people are familiar, I think, with the story over time, but I'm, I'm interested in a very pragmatic one, which is for your personal tweeting, do you have any hard and fast rules? Like for me, when I use Twitter, the main thing I, I tell myself is I'm just never going to tweet about politics or religion. Like those are the two things that are the kind of no fly zones for me. But I just wonder if you had like what you do with how you tweet and your philosophy. Yeah, well, if you'd asked me like a month ago, I probably would have said, no, I don't have any. A uh, big lesson learned for me was, you know, I got into this back and forth with Jason Calcanis and Parker Thompson about the whole um um, Coinbase, you know, uh, uh, Brian Armstrong's post about Coinbase. If you, you look, if you want to be a social activist, um, this isn't the place for you. Go, you know, go work somewhere else. We're just going to focus on the company mission. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing his blog post, so I apologize for that. Yeah. Anyway, Jason and Parker and I kind of got in a back and forth about it. And I wrote some really eloquent multi-thread post about it. And then, you know, Parker made some reply to it. And my reply to him was, 
I sort of just made this offhanded sarcastic comment like, hey, you know, if you, you know, people who think that, you know, business and society can be totally decoupled are going to be the first people, you know, lined up in the revolution. And, you know, I walked away and sort of ignored it because it was a response, you know, but wow, it got pulled out of context by a bunch of people. And, you know, Dick Costello said, Dick Costello, the Stalinist says, you know, capitalists should all be, should all be shot. I was like, oh man, that really went sideways. That was really stupid. Just, you know, the lesson learned is, First of all, sarcasm almost always falls flat on the platform. You can't really tell people. It's actually a very practical, pragmatic piece of advice there. Avoid sarcasm. Yeah. And and secondly, you just have to realize when you're applying to somebody that that thing can be pulled out and taken as its own piece of content and, you know, and and will be um, by lots and lots of people. And so replies aren't just, you know, they're public replies and they can be pulled out and separated from the conversation. And, you know, in that context, it looks it looks just as stupid as it was and you know, sort of a careless, sarcastic comment. So uh, good lesson learned, good two lessons learned. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I mean, when, when you step back, I mean, there's all this stuff in the news right now about social media impact, et cetera. Uh, but really, if you just look at the world today, anybody is five minutes from global fame under the right set of circumstances, whether yeah. or not they use social media or not. And, you know, we've seen it with, people that refuse to wear masks in stores and then do like crazy stuff. And then they are, they're on viral videos, et cetera. So it's, it's pretty remarkable how the world has really changed. And I wonder how often people uh, maybe just self-censor themselves a bit in ways that they might've never done it before. Just stepping back from like, whether you're regulated or not, just what the pragmatic implication has been on a lot of people and kind of how they live their lives in public. I 100% think that's the case, and you um, you start to censor yourself once you uh, uh, once you run into one of those situations where you say something in the you know that one of the one of the other things that's happening simultaneously, and I'm just backing up a second, is people now like you know whole, you'll 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 have a discussion about some idea, and um, people will sort of punish you for, you know, your position on an idea. And, you know, an idea is a, you're, you know, remember this great line, I think it was Sam Harris said it, your capacity to be offended is not a counter argument, you know? And like an idea is a thing to be kicked around on the floor like a ball. And, you know, <laughs> and, and the problem is you'll, you'll sort of even be testing out a thought about an idea on social media and people will sort of, you know, I'm going to use this against you in a court of law five years from now. And so I do think people start to censor themselves because of that. Yeah, no, it's pretty interesting. And, you know, another thing, I just, just some general questions I've been curious about with Twitter is, are, are you surprised that Twitter is still a standalone company? Or do you think it's one of those things that it's just not a natural acquisition for somebody? You know, it's, you know, it has a market cap of in the range of like 35 to 40 billion. It's kind of the same as Peloton was you know, cycle at home company, right? Does that surprise you that it's still independent? It does not surprise me that it's still an independent company. Um, you know, when I left um, in 2015, one of the things we were always trying to do is find our beachhead against Facebook, you know, constantly. Um, and so you're trying to figure out ways you can, you know, get a, get a, get, you know, outflank them, which is really, really hard to do with their user base or get some sort of beachhead, uh, 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 in, in your battle against them, if you will, in your competitive battle against them. And it was just remarkably challenging. You know, we, we bought Vine before it ever launched, went to number one in the app store, you know, great acquisition, went to, bought a thing before it ever launched, went to number one in the app store, you know, garnered tons of, you know, millions and millions of users. And then, you know, Instagram, uh, Instagram launched their, launched their short video competitor to it. And, Facebook prioritized that in posts and, and uh, you know, and, and, it, and it crushed us. Um, we launched Periscope, bought Periscope before it launched. Um, again, another great acquisition, bought it before it launched, launched it, live video, social, social live video, worked incredibly well. Facebook launches Facebook Live, works exactly like Periscope, and, you know, they crushed us. So we were constantly trying to think about ways to get beachheads um, vis-a-vis Facebook, and I always felt like, the place that we should go and and do a lot more work was in syndication. What I mean by that is, you know, so so much of Twitter is viewed off of Twitter. He tweets with tweets in ESPN.com, for example. You know, you go through go through a New York Times article and there's 20 tweets. 
And Facebook doesn't syndicate any of their content. In fact, you have to go to Facebook to look at it into the app or, or the or Facebook.com. Right. Come See into it. our garden. Come on yeah, into, our right, garden. into our garden. So Don't I always leave. felt like, man, if we can really figure out how to bundle and monetize syndication, that's a place Facebook doesn't want to go. And we'll have like, you know, it's green field. Um, anyway, and so we started doing that with moments. And then when I left, I think it got all that stuff kind of got deprioritized. But I have long felt that syndication is a world in which, um, you know, Twitter has has freedom to roam uh, without fear of being, you know, clobbered um, and as a huge opportunity for them. So uh, long answer, but I do think it, it, it is and should be a standalone company. Now, you were, whether, you were a founder. Or not, I don't know. Yeah. And and you were a founder of FeedBurner. And I'm, I'm curious with FeedBurner, maybe just for our listeners that aren't familiar with FeedBurner, like what FeedBurner was yeah. and then yeah. how you know, from there, how it may have, you know, shaped the way you thought about building Twitter and shaping Twitter. Yeah, Feedburner was a content syndication platform for, it was a basically a, a, a syndication platform for publishers that took their content from their website, distributed uh, in the form of these uh, feeds, if you will, XML feeds that could be consumed by any sort of content aggregator or website that wanted to redisplay it in whatever form they wanted to redisplay it. And in the process of syndicating that content, we, we did what we called managed the syndication for the publishers. So if it was the New York Times, for example, we helped them understand where that content was going, how many people were viewing it, um, inject ads into the stream if they wanted their, to monetize their feeds, et cetera, et cetera. So that was a sort of, you know, as you, as you sort of rightly intuit, um, led syndication at Twitter to be a, a, a natural topic for me and something I always wanted us to focus on a lot more. And we did spend a lot of time on it while I was there and, and improve the syndication tools dramatically. But I long have felt that that's an opportunity for the company to, um, you know, um, have yeah. a, the op open space to go to go roam and do whatever they want to do. Yeah, well, it sounds like as much as the beachhead, just very clear differentiation versus Facebook that's been built up over time. It's yep. part of the reason that it's a natural standalone company going forward, Twitter. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yes, you're correct. So an another thing I, I was curious about because you were at Twitter, you know, during these huge growth years you talked about from zero to 2 billion in revenue, et cetera. And you were at one of a handful of companies in Silicon Valley that has had CEOs either before or after that run multiple companies at once. And there's Jack Dorsey and Elon Musk and Alon looks like he runs like eight different companies at once, you know, yeah. Jack running two. How do people do that? Like, how is that actually done? Is it because they build good teams in place or like, how does it work? Um, the short answer is, I don't know. But if, if, <laughs> if you, if you um, the longer answer is, you know, and I'm, I'm probably paraphrasing or maybe even doing something worse, putting words in Jack's mouth. But I think Jack would tell you that the way he manages is, he, he works uh, hard to make sure he's got the right leaders in place and then lets those leaders um, make decisions and, and, and go and run with those decisions. And thinks of, thinks of himself as an editor more than a, a decision maker. Um, that's um, again, paraphrasing and probably butchering the way he would frame it, but I think that's generally what he would tell you. And I guess if you look at Elon Musk, you have similar stuff. You have Gwen Shotwell, anybody you talk to about SpaceX really yep. runs SpaceX. And he's the marketing arm of uh, most of the organizations, I guess, that he works with, you could argue. Yeah, that's right. And then, you know, uh, Kayvon Bigpour at, at, at Twitter, who was the founder and CEO of, uh, of Periscope, great, you know, great product thinker running running product over there at Twitter now and, and, and a bunch of other great people over there. So, so when you think about names in Silicon Valley right now, I mean, you know, it's funny how people like to say Elon or say Jack. Um, there are some people that say Dick, um, but who are those like the are, other kind people of- people are all dead now. They're long gone. <laughs> <laughs> well, I worked with a, a Dick. I worked with Dick Kramlick for many years at, at New Enterprise Associates, kind of from the last generation of Silicon Valley. Uh, but. Who are the, you know, one or two of the names that are kind of under the radar that you look at and you go, these people are going to become just as well-known and influential as these folks in another five years that may not be on the radar for most people yet? Yeah, I don't know if these, these two certainly aren't off the radar, but I don't know if people understand what great leaders they are. I really think the world of uh, the Collison brothers, Patrick and John, I just think are, there's 
they're not just smart, they're really, really thoughtful. And they, they don't, you know, they don't, they're not contrarian for the sake of being contrarian. You know, you'll, you'll see some people that'll say, well, I want to do HR differently. Like, why? Well, I don't know why. I just don't like HR, so I want to do it differently. These guys are just really, really thoughtful about every decision that's made. And will frequently ask themselves, like, wait, why do we think that? Do we think that because everyone thinks that? And maybe we haven't looked at the data lately and it's not the right way to think anymore. And I just think they're, I just think they're, they're, they leverage their intellect in really, really um, thoughtful ways to um, lead the business and manage the business in ways that other people don't think about. I'm, I'm just a huge fan of theirs. And I'll frequently, not frequently, I'll once in a while have a, I wonder what the right way to think about XYZ is. And Patrick and John are almost always uh, two of the most creative and insightful answers. Yeah, and they're the founders and one of them actually runs or are they co-CEOs of Stripe, this I think enormous- I think there's company. CEO and yeah, I think they're CEO and president. Who 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 do you think influenced them the most? Do you think their like like Combinator days influenced them, or is there somebody that really <laughs> you know, shaped them, or they just I, came out of the womb that way? I think they might have. Um, it's got to have something to do with their parents because they're both because they're they're both that way. Um, and you know, I remember I had dinner with them just pre-COVID. I think I had dinner with the two of them, and they were talking about gifts they'd given each other for the previous like holiday. And I think Patrick had given John the book, The History of Accounting. And I started laughing and like, is that like, you know, is that a joke? And you're like, no, 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 it's really fascinating. I'm like, you know, and I was like, is it? Is it really fascinating? And they just can talk about it like at length. They've both read it. Like, it's a thick book. And, you know, I'd probably get to page 10 of the history of accounting and like, okay, well, that's I, enough of that. <laughs> I would guess their IQs are pretty far up there as well. But it's interesting when you think about a lot of these, these folks, these iconic folks, they have both the IQ, but then this ability to hire amazing people. Yeah. They, they yeah, really do. Right. It's like this mark that is remarkable. That's exactly right. Well, Dick, we need to take a short break. We're going to be back. Um, when we're back, we'll continue our conversation. We're going to talk a bit about the pandemic. We're going to talk, uh, we'd definitely like to ask about uh, your childhood a little bit in Detroit and uh, also about the future of San Francisco. So sure. I'm Rob Conybeer. This is Launchpad on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. We'll be right back. You're listening to Launchpad on Business Radio. Welcome back to Launchpad on SiriusXM Business Radio. I'm Rob Conybeer, a founder and managing director at Shasta Ventures. I'm joined today remotely via Zoom by Dick Costello. He is the former CEO of Twitter and a founder of O1 Advisors. Again, Dick, thanks for joining me today. Yeah, great to be here. So in the first half of the show, we were talking a bit about Twitter and um, where you had drawn a lot of your inspiration from uh, as, as you were developing as an executive. And as I understand it, you grew up in the Detroit area. Uh, would, would love to hear just a bit about uh, what it was like growing up in Detroit and what was the time frame that you were growing up there? Um, I grew up there in the 70s and early 80s. Um, it was, um, you know, it's an automobile town. Um, we lived in the suburbs of Detroit, uh, Troy specifically. Um, and most everybody in the fam, in the, in the extended family, you know, my uncle worked for Ford, my grandfather worked for Chrysler, my dad worked for Pontiac, my cousin worked for Cadillac. I mean, and then it's, it sort of continue, it continues that way. Um, it, you know, at, at the time, um, uh, Detroit was pretty, pretty much a one horse town, uh, in the automobile industry. Um, and, uh, and, you know, left before it really went through its, um, darkest days there in the in, in the in the late 80s and 90s you know, sort of you would go back to Detroit in the early 2000s and sort of hollowed out um, and you know houses going you know houses selling for like three thousand four thousand dollars in the in the perimeter little perimeter towns like Hamtramck and stuff um, so it was it, that, that was it so I would call it a you know like a sort of a, a working class slash middle class um, you know upbringing um, all public schools, the whole, you know, just local public schools, the whole way, that sort of thing. And in that time frame, before you, you know, what, what led to your interest in computer science at Michigan? Were you starting to code? Were you playing around with an Apple II like so many of our peers? Or what, yeah, what were I had you? A, I, long before I went to college, actually, my dad was um, a, a computer scientist. So I, uh, he got me one of the first 
um, Radio Shack, you know, TRS-80 computers with the, you know. Oh, the, the trash little, 80s. Yeah, the trash 80s. So I was, I was, I was programming ba- little games in basic on the trash 80 early days. So I knew when the, you know, when I started at Michigan, I knew I was going to study computer science. Yeah, I remember actually the first computer game I ever played was Pillbox, where you would have these two cannons yeah. that you would yeah. shoot at each other. You just put in the elevation and then the yeah. amount of gunpowder that was in yeah. it. And it would just do the little dots across the screen. Exactly right. One little pixel firing across the screen. So yeah. so did you did you work to start any companies in that time frame or any interesting summer jobs? No. However, I was always like in, in Michigan, I was always interested in being an entrepreneur. I always knew I wanted to, you know, run my own. My mom was really like when my mom raised me, she was constantly reminding me like, be your own boss. You always, you know, always want to be your own boss. Don't let, you know, other people don't find yourself in situations where other people are telling you what to do. Be your own boss. Um, fight your own battles and be your own boss are probably the two things she said to me the most often. Um, so that was, uh, uh, you know, and, and so I always had the bug to do it and knew I eventually would. And when the opportunity came, when the, when the internet really started to just get going in 92, 93, this is, you know, first downloading the Mozilla browser, et cetera. Um, um, you know, I was like, oh man, this is, this is it. I'm going to go spend the rest of my time doing this. Yeah, this is coming. So, so talking about Detroit, uh, you know, I, I, I think it's an extreme analogy for San Francisco, but I, I lived in San Francisco for 23 years and in San Francisco, not even in the Valley and I've seen a lot of the changes there. And I personally moved to Seattle about two years ago. I've always wanted to live in the Pacific Northwest and I finally got around to making the move, but one of the things that has been an interesting, I don't know if theme is the right phrase or trend that's happened, is a lot of people that I didn't expect to move and a lot of companies that I didn't expect to move have actually been making fairly vocal moves out of San Francisco and out of California, you know, kind of in differing amounts. And I was just curious kind of, you know, what your thoughts are on this. This is something that's been increasingly in the news over the last six months. Yeah, I I think unfortunately, you know, look, I'm we're 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 in Marin, but our office is in San Francisco, and we don't have any intention of leaving. Um, and so, doing everything we can to support local businesses and so on, and that's that. It's really, um, I think, it's a trend that's going to continue, and it's a combination of you've got a you know, you've got a state tax here, income tax here of upwards of you know fourteen percent, in a world where people now realize because of COVID, like, oh, actually I can run this company from Portland. I can run this company from Nevada. I can run this company from Austin, Texas. So you're seeing people like, wait a minute, they don't, there's zero income tax in Austin, Texas. So you're just seeing th- that coupled with, look, I can't take the advantage, I can't take advantages of, one, of a bunch of the things that great sophisticated metropolitan areas offer because everything's closed. I, I don't think you're gonna see all those people return when it's over. Um, and I think you're going to see more of them leave. Piled on the top of all of that is San Francisco's apparent inability to manage any of its infrastructure. You know, they've been doing the single lane bus lane ex- expansion on Van Ness, which was supposed to be two years long, is now four years is now four years and still going. And they're they're blamed for it. Toward the end of that drought we had several years ago, was there was more rain the last two years than we anticipated. Like literally, there was less rain than there's been in a hundred years the last two years. So, and you know, add on to that the the one mile or however long it is, you know, subway they're trying to build that's now going to be was just announced is going to be another several years late. It's just all of those things piled together has got people leaving the city, and I don't expect them to come right back when COVID is over. Yeah, it's interesting. I I, I think that. In contrast to Detroit, because you have multiple industries, although people say tech, you could argue that it's multiple industries and you've seen the changes over time, whether it's gig economy companies, whether it's social media companies, whether it's semiconductors, all that. You see, you don't have just the the change and the decline in fortunes of just one industry impacting San Francisco. I think as much as anything, what may happen is you don't have the... um, the connection between startups and capital being living in the same place that you had before. So the capital is still available, but I think it actually is just going to help a lot of other areas raise capital because for a year, and I'm sure you've experienced this as well, venture capitalists have been trained in using Zoom to invest in companies. Right. And it's been a year, it'll be at least a year. I think the earliest that any of the venture capital offices are gonna open is probably next summer 
maybe in the spring, but likely next summer. So now you have people that have actually been trained in doing it, which is very different than any of the shifts before. Because you know how people always talk about, hey, there's the trend story about New York City's dead. No, it's it's not dead. Or San Francisco dead, but it's not dead. But this one, I think, just means the character of the city is just going to change a lot. You'll, it'll still be a vibrant, interesting city, but it's much less likely to be the epicenter, so to speak, of, of tech and startups that it has been in the past. At least yeah. that's how I see it. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree with you more. I think you're 100% correct. So for you, when you've been advising people in this pandemic that we're in right now, what what have been the kind of the, you know, there's, there's a lot of stuff that people have talked about, but what have been the non-obvious things that you've advised entrepreneurs and executives that you've worked with in working with their companies during the pandemic to get through the pandemic? Um, First of all, it can be, it can be just, I just think that, um, well, two, two specific things. One physical, physical, like focusing on, it's so easy when like the next day is the same as the last day is the same as tomorrow. And you know, you everyone makes the joke, like, I guess tomorrow's Saturday, is it though? Cause it's just another, it's the same. It's so easy to fall into this rut of like, just, you know, not taking care of yourself. Um, and so, have really just been, you know, make sure you continue to focus on like your physical well-being and your mental well-being because it just it just comes under almost remarkable pressure when the monotony of today and tomorrow all being the same and you're seeing the same people every day and you've got no variety just creeps up on you. Um, and if you don't take care of yourself and your your mental well-being, your physical well-being, and separate yourself from you know Zoom, for example, and go out and you know hike alone up, you know, Mount Tavern Marin. So, you know, go out and like hike to Stinson Beach alone and get time away from everybody else that you've been with day after day after day. It's like just super important. You don't notice it until it like, you know, until you find yourself, you know, yelling at the wall one day when, you know, with nobody else around and you realize like, oh man, I've got to like change things up. So I just think that it's easy to fall into these ruts because you don't have to be somewhere and you don't, have to put on pants and you don't have to, you know, and so people just fall into these ruts and not letting yourself do that and really having a, a regimen of making sure you're getting outside or if you're, you know, it's freezing where you are doing whatever physical exercise you need to be doing and focusing on your mental well-being, whether that's, you know, meditation or something else entirely um, is super important. You know, I started using the, during quarantine, I started using the Sam Harris uh, waking up app and I just you know I've never been into any of those meditation apps and his is just I think fantastic oh, wait, so so tell me more about that what is this Sam Harris meditation app? Oh, Sam, he's got this a meditation app called waking up um it's it's a meditation app like other meditation apps but he sort of a, he doesn't approach it from that he doesn't really approach it from the uh, more you know um foo-foo uh, meditation, uh, you know, uh, style. Um, it's much more, his is much more about like, just about um, trying to observe what consciousness is and observe what it's like and, and understand that anytime you're angry or you're upset or you're frustrated, that's a, just a construct of consciousness that you're allowing to overtake you and, you know, you can actually control it. Um, and it's, it's been like extraordinarily helpful and powerful for me. Yeah, out of curiosity, I guess we're getting a little metaphysical here. Have you read the Four Agreements? I have not. Oh, you'll I, enjoy. I'll I follow up with you afterwards I, yeah, about it. Great. I'm yeah. familiar with it, but I have not read it. Yeah, but I think the the the, the larger point being, mental health is really important, and spending time just thinking about how to lower the stress level through different kind of tools and techniques. I mean, people have been doing this, I guess, you know, for thousands and thousands of years. Different techniques for kind of removing stress and being able to just focus on being present and improving yep. is, is that, a, is that a big part of how you kind of approach your days or is this kind of something that you kind of bolt on at the end of the day? Cause you get, you know, in the hamster wheel, like everybody else. No, I start with it. Uh, and this is the physical stuff I had always been doing the, the, the mental, um, and, um, sort of the, the meditation and I've added a couple other weird sort of people will be like, okay, well, that's just not stupid. I've got one of those acupressure mats. That's essentially like a bed of nails. Um, it's sort of, you know, meant to be like 
do-it-yourself acupuncture, if you will. And I've tried to, you know, just develop habits of being able to like stand on that for three minutes barefoot without screaming and, um, and you know, ice cold showers and stuff like that, just to, be, just to get into the habit in the morning of calming my, like, just calm your mind, you know, and, and understand that like, this is all just, you know, something that you're in control over and you can get through it. And, you know, if you just breathe deeply and calm your mind, this is all gonna be fine. That stuff is, I've just found that to be super helpful. So if you're just tuning in, I'm Rob Conyveer, and this is Launchpad on Sirius XM 132 Business Radio. And my Dick, or excuse me, my guest today is Dick Costolo. He is the former CEO at Twitter and managing partner at O1 Advisors. So it's interesting to talk about this calmness because I've heard you in the past talk about managing is like managing, you know, running a business is like um, handling a forest fire. And I wondered if you could expand a bit on that analogy, what you mean by managing a forest fire, forestry. Yeah, I'll, I'll, the, the way I like to talk to CEOs about this is, you know, as your organization grows and your company grows, as a CEO, you need to, you need to migrate from fighting forest fires to forestry management. You know, like mm. it's, the job of, it's the job of the, directors and the managers and the ICs to fight the forest fires. Don't keep diving into whatever the next forest fire is and trying to help put it out. Your job as the CEO is to be looking 12, 18, 24 months ahead and thinking about forestry management. Let someone else, you know, have people on the teams responsible for chopping down the trees and clearing the power lines and putting, making sure that fire is out before it jumps a highway. You need to be thinking about forestry management. management. What's the right way to make sure there are less fires 18 months from now? That's interesting. Way? So maybe when you come into a company at first, like if you were to come in as the governor of California, for example, and you look and you're like, okay, we need to focus on the forest fires that are you know, near the highway or near the town, et cetera. But the real answer in what you're saying is actually in clearing out the underbrush and doing everything you can to, to prevent like the, you know, the unnecessary fires from taking hold to begin with. Yeah, I just think that lots of CEOs, as their company grows, they're used to solving problems. You know, they got here by solving the problems themselves. And so they, when there's a forest fire, they dive in. And again, as you grow and you have like a thousand, two thousand people, you got to stop doing that. Um, you need to let the team find their own, you know, make their own decisions and find solutions because you need to be focusing out 18 to 24 months ahead because nobody else is. Um, and if you don't, then no one in the company is. Um, and uh, just uh, just found that to be a helpful analogy in talking to new CEOs that we're working with. Yeah, no, it's 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 a particularly interesting time right now as well because I think all of us are seeing what's coming with the vaccines, and whether it's the Moderna vaccine or the Pfizer vaccine or some others that are getting close, so we can kind of see the light at the end of the tunnel. Unfortunately, it looks like it's still going to be you know another six seven months till many of us can take that vaccine. So it seems like it's a time for, you know, as, as you phrased it before, resilience um, to be able to get through this time because the next, you know, to get through another six months, I think for anybody is kind of tough right now. Yep, I uh, agree. I think the, um, it's gonna be fascinating to watch the next six months as you have a large number of affluent, non-at-risk people wanting to get a vaccine that is intended to be distributed by governments to very, very high risk, not necessarily affluent at all people. And the government is unlikely to do it, you know, rapidly and, and super efficiently. So I just think it's gonna, I think there'll be a lot of stories that come out of this about crazy things that people are trying to do to get the vaccine. Oh, like maybe flying to another country or yeah, doing or, stuff or, like or that. Or whatever, yeah. That's interesting, yeah. A lot of that hasn't really hit the news yet. So. So what do you think is going to happen? <laughs> I, I guess I guess uh, I guess we have the nervous laughter because it's yet like yeah. we know it's coming. Yeah, we know it's um, coming. How, how do you think it all ends? Because maybe it's because I'm an optimist, but I actually feel like there's a roaring twenties in front of us, and uh, I don't know if it ends as badly as the last roaring twenties ended, but feels to me like there's just so much pent up energy that as much as people talk about, okay, Zoom is here, people, you know, Zoom has changed everything. My personal point of view is 
Zoom is basically going to replace kind of the wasted 20% of business travel. But if anything, people are going to want to travel as much as they did before on a personal basis. And, you know, there's really been no good alternative to conferences going and seeing people in person. So I'm curious, you know, what you think happens in the next year, two years, five years, which of the changes are permanent and then which may actually, you know, just get discarded and we go back to the way things were before. So first of all, I completely agree with you that I think there's a roaring twenties ahead of us. I mean, the, the pent up energy that I see from people who also realize, you know, I put off that trip and I put off that trip and I put off that trip. And now I realize there might not ever be a trip if I don't do it when I can do it after the vaccine. I think that this coming summer post vaccine is going to, you're just going to see people doing everything they always wanted to do. Um, and, and the energy level is going to be, you know, globally through the roof. And I think that's great. I don't think that um, post vaccine, that business will just go right back to the way it was. I also don't think that it will be, hey, we're all permanently working from home now. Um, but I do believe that the, the under, so one, the understanding that, look, we can run this business from anywhere is going to mean that states like California have to increasingly compete with nearby states that have no income tax. Otherwise people, because people are gonna just gonna go, well, I can do this from over here and there's no income tax over here. Um, so it's gonna mean states like California have to compete with those states and I don't know how they're gonna do that. Um, and then, I, and then uh, uh, similarly, I think that office space will be less, this is my office and this is my desk and, this, and lots and lots more shared workspaces for the groups of people that do come into the office with some regularity and, you know, uh, uh, but, but not everybody. I think there will be lots of companies um, where maybe 50% or 70% of the workforce is in the office all the time. And 30% of the people are like, yeah, I never really need to go in. Yeah, no, I think it'll be interesting. One of the things that did surprise me about California that I've read about over the last month or two is they're actually facing, as I've read, a budget surplus because people did not expect the market to behave the way it has this year. So there have been a lot of capital gains that have been realized this year, which were completely unexpected, despite it, a lot of the departures that you've seen. It'll be, it'll be interesting to see how it unfolds. I, I actually think that in California, they may not have got, you know, in, in government, they may not get the memo for another couple of years. Yeah. I think uh, right. Until a lot of these, basically until you see the next Google, Facebook, whichever you want to, you know, see it is actually coming out of Austin. I mean, you've seen it in Seattle, obviously, because you have Amazon and Microsoft have done it. But when you start to see people moving their companies to other cities, I mean, Facebook was a great example, right? Because you had uh, a company that could just as easily have been built in Boston, or maybe not as easily, but was going to be built in Boston, got moved to the Bay Area at a very early stage. It'll be really interesting to see if you see something similar happen with guys like Keith Raboy and moving to Miami and people moving to Austin, whether you see this um, sea change where San Francisco is not like Detroit, as we were talking about before, but it just becomes much more of an average bohemian city where it's fun to live, but it doesn't have this world changing impact that it's had for the last 30 years. I think that's 100% correct. You know, I, I heard an anecdotal data point, um, meaning I heard the data point anecdotally from a friend of mine the other day, I didn't read it myself, um, that the price of renting a one-way U-Haul from San Francisco, San Francisco to Austin is over $4,000, and the price of renting a one-way U-Haul from Austin to San Francisco is $780. So, you know, I, I don't think that's gonna change for a while. Well. One thing building on this, and we've got about another five minutes here. If you were doing it all over again, I'm, I'm guessing when you came out and you came out to the Bay Area, it was about getting into tech and the opportunities out here. If you have somebody that's just graduating from college and just starting out right now and they're thinking about where do they go, is it more important to just think about industry, what they want to do, and it's not as important where they go, or would you? recommend them to a specific geographic area? Like if you're, you know, advising your niece or nephew or, or a friend who's coming out of college. 
Well, on the one hand, I'm the worst possible person to ask this question, because if you had looked at the graduating class of my computer science department from the University of Michigan and saw that I was going to Chicago to try to perform improv comedy and get on SNL, probably the last person you would have picked to be, who's the one that, you know, 20 years from now is going to be running a $30 billion public company in technology? So I don't know. But what I will say is what, you know, I gave this commencement speech at the University of Michigan in 2013. And I, I made this comment and it's been so true for me. I've never, I've never regretted any of the really big risks I've taken. You know, I've all, they've always like, you know, the problem with commencement speeches and the reason I said this in my commencement speeches, you hear these commencement speeches and these people tell you, you know, go out there and make an impact. Well, you're like, like impact is the thing you recognize that happened after you did it, you know, like, it, you don't see it while you're doing it even some some of the time you know it's the it's when you look over your shoulder in the water and the wake behind you is oh that's that's this major impact i had so telling people to go make an impact is like well now what i do you're sort of frozen there in your own life and so when i when i had taken risks in my life and career huge ones even like i'm not taking any jobs <laughs> go to i'm going to go to chicago and you know, work at Crate and Barrel during the day and perform comedy at night. Like it just, those things always worked out for me. And I would, my career advice is when you're young and just starting out, take as many risks as you can because they'll, you know, it'll, it'll all sort of, it all sort of always works out in the end. And lots of times though, you can't, you know, as Steve Jobs said in his commencement speech at Stanford, you can't connect the dots looking forward. You can only connect them looking backward. Yeah, well, it's really, really interesting. And the thing I would say, just observing what you're talking about, is that you did focus on a passion that you had. You were very interested in improv right. and you wanted to give it a real shot. So right. it wasn't just taking a risk. It was taking a risk on something where you were just passionate about it. You want to see how far you could go. And, you know, to a certain extent, you, you know, you, you, you encountered failure there. You didn't go yeah. where you wanted to right. go, et cetera. But you learned a hell of a lot and it's relatively low stakes when you're young. Yeah. And you become resilient. You know, you realize like, OK, like remember when my first, uh, you know, we only have a couple minutes left. I was when I first started at Twitter. I went to this like conference, started talking about what the business model was going to be. And, and Julia Borstein from CNBC was there. And she's like, hey, can we do five minutes of live TV afterwards? And sure. And, you know, I got off stage about of talking and start getting mic'd up for this CNBC live interview from the conference. And the producer says, hey, this is live TV, you know, don't be nervous. And I started laughing. I said, I've been- two things don't go together. I was like, I've been booed on stage by like a thousand people at a, you know, at a at a comedy festival. Like this is looking into the black screen for four minutes yeah. is not gonna be a problem for me. Nick, thank you so much today. This has been fantastic. And for people who'd like to keep up with you, uh, what's the best way to follow you? <laughs> uh, the best way to follow me is on Twitter, probably at Dixie, at Dixie on Twitter. Great. Well, Dick, thanks again. This has been a great conversation. Yeah, cheers. Thanks, Rob. Appreciate it. I'm Rob Conybeer, a founder and managing director at Shasta Ventures, and you've been listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.